millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart and with me is my chum, Gary Big Boy Bane. Hello, Gary. Hello, small boy Pete. <laughs> Thought I might get that one. You all right, uh, mate? I'm good, I'm good. Well, today we've got something exciting and it's relating to our book. What's our book called that's coming out on November the 11th? Laugh or Cry, The British Soldier on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918. I could see it. it There's emotion in my voice. <coughs> It's your first book, isn't it, Gary? It is my first, and possibly my last. <laughs> yes, you've only read three. <laughs> now, uh, what, what? so today it's Laugh or Cry, and this episode is on fighting in the trenches. We've done conditions in the trenches, and now we're going to do the sort of routine. Is there such a thing as routine fighting? Routine fighting in the trenches. I would add at this point, Pete, that the book is available from all good outlets and some bad ones too. Not when this comes out, uh, it isn't. From November the 11th. So anybody who's, who's enjoying the podcasts, I think you'll enjoy the book. And if you look on social media, you'll see there's still, well, there's about 10 places left. Uh, uh, they might have all gone for the conference that launches it with uh, who are our guests they're both sex gods aren't they Richard Van Emden and what's he speaking on you can't remember can you a stage meeting the enemy uh, meeting the enemy contacts yeah. with the Germans and then there's uh, our favourite sex god Taff Gillingham what's he speaking on what a load of kit Tate's talking about kit then. He's talking about British Army kit. And it's all going to be presented by our good friend, Alex Churchill. She is. She is a good friend. Right. So, uh, so that's uh, all the advertising. Let's get on with it. So, uh, so, 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 so what are we talking about? So tell me about life in the trenches. What's it like? Well, it's, it's one of routine. It's, it's a stale tedium, but it's slashed by moments of sudden nerve shredding terror. Now, that could be said of most wars, but the contrast was particularly stark in the Great War. A tour of duty, it'd include uh, three-day stints in the front, support and reserve lines before going out to rest and sometimes right back into the reserve. So that's contrary to popular opinion, Pete. They, they were not always in the front line. Now, the British Army expends a huge amount of staff time uh, uh, circulating round within a uh, within a battalion, the companies within a brigade, the battalions within a division, the brigades, so that they're they're all circling round and they don't 
just sat stagnating in the front line. So the men knew that they'd have a chance of uh, remission in the near future. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, and we're not, the, the days spent in the front line are still, they're terrible, aren't they, really? Especially in winter or when the front was active. And that, that's a word that conceals a multitude of rea- hellish realities, I suppose. Now, the, the soldiers' day, that'd start around dawn with stand two. And this is Sergeant Jack Dorgan of the 1st 7th Northumberland Fusiliers. Aye. Activities of every description stopped entirely an hour before daylight. There were no whistleblown, no signals given, but quietly every working party finished what they were doing. Every patrol was brought in, back into the trench. All of the sentry duties, groups, were put on alert. That, that was called Stand 2. Over the whole of the frontline trenches, there was a silence. In that hour, you just stood there quietly. Every man out, officers and men, all in the front line. Bayonets fixed, one in the breach, and an ample supply of ammunition for whatever might occur. Now, that's not a funny one, but we thought that was just sets the scene of a stand to perfectly. And I noticed you did an accent. I did. Oh, it's going to be one of those days then. Uh, then day or night, there would be the sentries. Men assigned to monitor what was going on across no man's land and to guard against being surprised by the Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During the day, they'd listen out and have the occasional peek, uh, carefully, <laughs> uh, from behind a sandbag or, uh, or or they might use a, a simple periscope. Uh, although that itself is an inviting target. I bet I can hit that periscope. Oh, that would be in German, of course. Now, you're going to be Corporal Alf Damon, 16th Middlesex Regiment. Ooh, public school boy battalion. I expect a posh voice. We were issued with mirrors, about five by three inches, which we could clip onto our bayonets. They were less obvious than the usual type of box periscope. We could get some idea of what the shelling was doing to the Bosch forward trenches. Not that anyone could see much because there was some ground that was a little higher than our position. I saw very little. Almost as soon as I raised my mirror above the trench, glass spattered everywhere. Jerry had some talented snipers at Beaumont Hamel and this one shot out several of our new trench mirrors. An officer of another battalion was passing with his runner. Let's see how good he is with a tin hat, he said, and hooked mine up with his walking stick. The sniper responded to this challenge immediately, and my tin hat spun to the trench floor with a large dent in it. The officer took my bent tin hat and gave me his in exchange. I often wondered what tale of daring do he told, and in what place of honour my hat ended its days. Now, at, at night, they're, they're, they're far freer to look over the top, but uh, d- does darkness provide complete protection, Gary, or uh, not? Well, not really. Not from the speeding bullet of the fixed rifle or spraying machine gun. Now, the NCOs were charged with ensuring that the sentries were following the rotor and um, staying awake. And uh, although it seems some rather evaded this responsibility, and you're going to be young... Private Arthur Smith of the Ninth Royal Fusiliers. You each do an hour in the night, say from nine o'clock onwards until five or six next morning. The sergeant didn't want to keep awake and come along and fetch each one, each one out on guard when his hour and when the hour was up. I was the only one with a wristwatch, so the first night I handed my watch over to the first one, and each was to pass the watch on after the hour. I was to be the last one. Well. When I came on, I could see it wasn't anywhere near the time because it was still very dark. 
What they'd done is they'd each done their hour. <laughs> they hadn't. Sorry. What they'd done is that they hadn't done their hour. They'd each one wound the watch on a bit to look like the hour. Did about a quarter of an hour, wound the watch on the full hour, woke the next person and said, here you are, mate. <laughs> so I came on very early and had two or three hours. It was funny. Much laughter next day. I didn't lend the watch in future. Mm, wonder why not. Now, he had a bit of a reading difficulty, did. Uh, I remember interviewing Arthur. He couldn't read properly. No. Now, once on duty, the men peered into the uh, Stygian darkness. <laughs> you, you swallowed a dictionary recently. It or, was, or a book of military quotations. It was common for men to imagine they saw movement. Was that a German patrol sneaking towards them? Or a tree stump? Of course... There's the usual tall stories passed around of the interaction of officers and the sentries they were ins inspecting. And uh, one favourite is this, and this is Private Marmaduke Walkington of the 1st 16th London Regi Regiment. That's the Queen's Westminster Rifles. Fine body of men, Gary. And uh, he says this, Those trenches were very wet indeed. The rum that we had used to come up in earthenware flagons just over a foot high. I was on sentry duty during the daytime and the brigadier came round. I was standing just poised on the top of one of these rum jars to keep out of the water. When he came round, like a good soldier, I thought I ought to stand to attention and I jumped off the rum jar and was then up to my knees in muddy water. He said, oh, you needn't have done that. <laughs> now, one of my favourites, I'm going to be next. Uh, he's, a, he's an irascible bugger. <laughs> We've had quotes from him before. He nearly always hits the lads, but uh, he, he was dissatisfied with the performance of one of his sentries. And I'm going to be uh, Ma Major Gerald Burgoyne, 2nd Royal Irish Rifles. Another two casualties this morning. A fool on guard goes to sleep with his rifle at full cock. On being awakened to go on sentry, he shoots himself through the foot, the bullet going on into another man's legs. What can one do with fools of this kind? That sounds like me. Hmm. Now, sentries had to be alert. I mean, I suppose the clue's in the name, really. Uh, as there were a variety of activities that could be carried out under the cover of darkness in no man's land. And they had to be wary of shooting their own men. Mm, that's true. Uh, so what sort of things do they do? Well, in front of them, there's loads of rows of barbed wire. And they've got to be checked and refreshed day by day, week by week, to make sure that, you know, that the Germans don't cut it through or something. Uh, now, any wiring party out in no man's said, well, why is that dangerous, do you think? Well, they're vulnerable to the Germans opening fire if they're detected. And uh, that's particularly the case uh, before they brought in the screw-in pickets. Because <laughs> before that, they used to just hammer them in with sledgehammers and things. Yeah, that's not sort of naturally quiet, is no, it? No, it's certainly not. And you're going to be second lieutenant, Thomas Farmer of the East Kent Regiment. We were on a wiring party in the loose salient, 12 men just out from home. Jerry's very lights were numerous, machine guns were unpleasantly busy, and there were all the dangers and alarms incidental to a sticky part of the line. The wiring party, carrying stakes and wire, made its way warily, and every man breathed apprehensively. Suddenly, one London lad tripped over a piece of old barbed wire and almost fell his length. Lammy! he exclaimed. That ain't half dangerous. <laughs> um, it's, as you can imagine, wiring parties, they're not popular, are they? They're not what somebody wants. Because there's 
other perils, nameless perils, Gary, lurking in no man's land. And I remember doing this interview and I remember laughing out loud when he told me this story. It's Harold Hayward of the 12th Gloucestershire Regiment, Private Harold Hayward. He said this. The first time we went over wiring, of course, everything was shh, 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 which, by the way, is the noisiest word in the English language, but never mind. Going out over top tonight, go quietly. Not a word to one another. We were going to make a proper continuous line. That's a, a, a barbed wire. I just happened to step to one side and I went up to my neck into a French latrine. I said, help, help. They said, shh, shh. I thought, I'm not going to die like this. When my parents asked, what caused his death? He fell into a latrine and was drowned. <laughs> They pushed their rifles down and I caught, caught hold of two of them and they pulled me out. But no one would come near me for the rest of the time in the line. One of our favourite latrine stories, Gary. <laughs> now, the effect of small arms fire was reduced with the men undercover in the trenches. Of course. Now, newcomers uh, were often given valuable advice under fire. As American volunteer Guy MP discovered when serving with the London Regiment. And this is Private Guy MP of 1st London Regiment. That's handy, he'll have a London accent. He's American. With a London accent. <laughs> Occasionally, a bullet would crack overhead and a machine gun would kick up the mud on the bashed-in parapet. At each crack, I would duck and shield my face with my arm. One of the older men noticed this and whispered, Don't duck at the crack of a bullet, Yank. The danger has passed. You never hear the one that wins you. Always remember that if you're going to get it, you'll get it. So never worry. This made a great impression on me at the time. And from then on, I adopted his motto. If you're going to get it, you'll get it. All my nervousness left me. And I was laughing and joking with the rest. Um, this fatalism, I'm not sure how it works with me. I would be worried about getting it. <laughs> anyway, it's a, a common fatalistic reaction. And uh, I'm going to be uh, Captain John Staniforth. And he sums it up brilliantly, doesn't he, Gary? You could perhaps help me a bit with it. What regiment am I? 7th Leinster Regiment. That's going to be an interesting accent. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway, uh, to be here... Uh, is to be philosophical. We have evolved a philosophy accordingly. What do you think of it? If you're a soldier, you're either one at home or two at the front. If one, you needn't worry. If two, you are either one out of the danger zone or two in it. If one, you needn't, needn't worry. worry. If two, you are either one not hit or two hit. If one, you, you needn't, needn't worry. If two, you're either one, trivially wounded, or two, dangerously wounded. If one, you, you needn't, needn't worry. If two, you either will one, live, or two, die. If you live, you, you needn't, needn't worry. And if you die, you can't, can't worry. Now, that's just brilliant. What a great fatalistic thing. I'm not sure it would help me, but it, it certainly helps some of the lads. Now, even when it's quiet on the Western Front, all quiet on the Western Front, as the book says, uh, there'd be a steady trickle of casualties to be evacuated. Uh, for most men, wh what do you think they, they think about that? Well, a blighty wound, because that'd mean they'd be sent back for treatment to Britain, which uh, was much cherished. I bet it was. Well, don't blame them. And you're going to be Lieutenant, one of your favourites. I know you picked these quotes to the book, I remember. Lieutenant Walter Belford of the 11th Australian Battalion. Australian. <laughs> 
On one occasion, a stretcher case was noticed on the trolley with a huge, satisfied smile on his face and a large notice on his breast, which bore the legend, Blighty, first stop. Well, yeah, and who can blame him? Now, machine gun fire, that's deadly if you're caught in no man's land or exposed for too long above the parapet. But if you're deep in your trenches, uh, it's not a great source of casualties. Of course it's not. Uh, And indeed, uh, there's a great quote I'm going to read here from Private Ivor Watkins, who I remember interviewing in Swansea, I think it was, 15th Welsh Regiment. And Private uh, said, One particular machine gunner had the knack of going, Pom diddly pom pom. Pom pom! <laughs> He'd wait a few minutes, then pom diddly om pom, pom pom! And Jerry would reply, pom diddly brrrr! <laughs> it may seem silly and amusing now, but he could never follow that sequence. Wavering accent of all that. <laughs> yes, I'm not saying anything. Now, f- far more deadly was the single aimed shot of the concealed <laughs> sniper. The German trenches were usually on slightly higher ground. They and cheat, their sniping they? They do often cheat. proved lethal. Yes, they cheat. There's no warning, just the sharp crack of the rifle. Now, vulnerable points near and the line are marked down by snipers on both sides. Perhaps a bay's been blown in by a shell, not properly fixed yet, or anywhere where the Germans could just get a peek into the British lines. It doesn't matter much. It's just the top of your head will do for them. Uh, but men became aware of the danger spots and they put up warning notices. And they weren't all serious, were they? I love this next one. You're going to be Lieutenant Edward Living of the 12th London Regiment. That's the Rangers. Some jester had pinned up an ironical notice on the wall of the support line trench just before it crossed the sunken road to Puisso. If you don't want to become a landowner in France, keep well down whilst crossing the sunken road. He means a grave, doesn't he? He does, yes. <laughs> but even being forearmed and forearmed, forewarned, whatever, every anything you can be for, forestalled. No, not forced. Anyway, it does not prevent unpleasant consequences. And this is a a sad little story from your favourite, Lieutenant Walter Belford, still in the 11th Australian Battalion. Sergeant Martin Delbridge met his death in a most unfortunate manner. He was cautioning some new hands about bobbing up and down when observing over the parapet. He explained that quick movements were almost sure to attract the attention of the enemy, After showing the troops how to observe, he then said, you ought to raise your head slowly like this. Suiting action to the word, he slowly raised his head above the parapet and was immediately shot through the brain. Yeah, not all the stories in our book are funny. Uh, I mean, that's just black humour. That's why they're... it's sort of funny, but it's not funny for poor old Martin Delbridge. Now, uh, sniping's a brutal business, would you not say? Yeah, and and it's perceived by most frontline soldiers as cold-blooded killing. And indeed, snipers were often not particularly popular men within their own trenches. And this is Brigadier General Lord Edward Gleichen, good old-fashioned British name, of Headquarters 15th Brigade. (laughs) When going round the trenches, I asked a man whether he'd had any shots at the Germans. He responded there was an elderly gentleman with a bald head and a long beard who often showed himself over the parapet. Well, why didn't you shoot him? Shoot him, said the man. Why, Lord bless you, sir. He's never done me no harm. A case of live and let live, which is certainly not to be encouraged. But cold-blooded murder... Is never popular with our men. And, you know, you can see why. 
Early in the war, the British had a complete absence of viable trench mortars and hand grenades. Oh, they're just not ready for trench warfare, are they, at all? And they found themselves seriously embarrassed because the Germans had a lot better weaponry in this. You know. uh, so what do you think the British did? What, what would we do? Well, in true British style, the most ludicrous makeshift measures were taken to stem the gap, including raiding museums to secure weapons from a bygone age. Now, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Julian Tyndale Bisco of Sea Battery Royal Horse Artillery. Things are actually beginning to get a bit hot. We have nothing to compete with the Bosch in the way of trench mortars and have to use any old thing we can lay our hands on. To make things more unpleasant, they hold most of the high ground in a two to three mile semicircle in front and to our flanks. In fact, we are in a sort of saucer. The following came out in orders. Trench howitzer introduced by uh, six corps named Toby, used with great effect, found in Paris and last used in 1700. Toby seemed highly pleased at being put on the active list after 200 years on the reserve list. Ridiculous. Uh, However, we're now going to take a short break to think about that. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Germans had the dreaded Minenwerfers. Minenwerfer. A fearsome weapon that could project large shells into the general area of the British trenches. Yeah, it's not accurate, is it? But... No, but when the trenches are close together, this was a terrible disadvantage. All they could do was try and dodge the incoming deadly missiles. Mm. It, 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 it was terribly difficult, especially at night, because these things are coming over. You, you can't work out exactly where they're going to land. They don't fly in a particularly straight line. Uh, and uh, oh, it's just now, difficult. Some, they choose to see it as a game, Pete. And, of course, the British accuse the Germans of cheating. Well, I'm going to be a right miserable bugger. Lieutenant Norman Down of the 4th uh, Gordon Highlanders. And he says this. When he starts to serenade us with the local Minenwerfer, there's a poof, and there up in the air, for all the world like a big beer bottle, is the latest little bit of hate. Up, 
it goes, and then it starts to come down. As it falls, you can make out roughly, roughly, Gary, where it should land. And you at once proceed, at the double, to the end of the uh, playground that's furthest away. It is a fine game with just the right element of luck. Sometimes the wind blows the bomb to your end. (laughs) And one which encourages initiative and rapid powers of decision. Two qualities much sought after in military circles. As usual, the Hun has not played fair. And this morning, he started two Minenwerfers going from different places and directed at opposite ends of the playground. That's the Hun all over. Never able to see that a game's a game. Mm. The Minenwerfers were a constant menace, battering away at the front-line trenches. It was only later in the war that the British obtained the highly functional three-inch Stokes mortars and other heavy mortars. Yeah, I think something very similar to the Stokes mortar, I think you probably trained on when you were a lad. Yeah, fairly similar, I Three-inch mortars. Same, same principle. Yeah. Um, now, what, were the, what these are really efficient weapons. They slathered shells all across the German lines and they're, they're sort of pocket artillery for infantrymen, just, of course, as the Minenwerfer had been two years earlier for uh, the Germans. There you go. Hand grenades, Gary. How are we doing with that? Well, the British soon generate a, a supply of improvised bombs. Safe? Are they safe? No, they're no means uh, soldier-proof. Is anything soldier-proof? <laughs> well, in this case, many were far more of a danger to their own side than the uh, Germans. Now, the, the other thing is that I love the next quote because it shows us uh, people talk about soldier-proof. What about officer-proof? Because uh, this is uh, a quote from an officer who, who they're supposed to know better, but this sort of wild stupidity is just lovely. And you're going to be Lieutenant James Hindson of the 1st Loyal North Lancashire Regiment. Loyal North Lancashire. You can use your generic northern. Aye. Aye. Perhaps they will improve someday, but the type of bomb now produced for our edification is made from an ordinary plum and apple jam tin with an attached fuse which which has to be lit by a match before drawing. This is obviously unsatisfactory in wet or windy weather. It's when, often wet and windy where you are. When it is difficult to get the match to light. But Aye. it is the only sort available at present, and the troops have to be taught to use it. One of the first produced was put by some irresponsible idiot on the heating stove in the officer's mess and then forgotten. It was not spotted for some time, not indeed until it was nearly red hot and the individual in question was ordered to remove it and drop it in a bucket of water. During this process, most of us made ourselves extremely scarce, feeling profoundly grateful that it had not exploded in the mess. Which would not have been so funny, but that is, I mean, putting a live grenade on top of a stove is spectacular. Now, even when a viable hand grenade in the form of the uh, ubiquitous Mills bomb arrived at the front in 1915, there were still dangers to employing them in the close confines of a trench. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Adrian Hodgkin of the 1st 5th Cheshire Regiment says. The hand grenade is great fun. The pictures of it in the official books explain it sufficiently. The great point is to avoid hitting the back of the trench with it as you throw it. If this happens, you will be unable to relate your experience to your friends. 
And again, you might remember from your military service, they used to have a sergeant, while you were practicing grenade throw, and he would grab, if you dropped it, if you hit the back of the trench and drop it, they'd grab you and put you in the side place. Do you remember? Or jail. Or jail. <laughs> I remember you giving a grenade demonstration. Yes, once. let's not go now. To the men in the trenches, sometimes the only thing that really mattered was the artillery. Yeah. It dominated their lives. Yeah, you can think of it, Gary. And you can see why this causes tension. You can imagine someone makes a minute adjustment to a dial site on a German gun miles and miles away, and that's life or death to you in your trench, isn't it? Yeah, the uncertainty of it caused tremendous stress and was the origin of the shell shock, which we now equate to post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, I always think, and our good friend Ali Hollington has pointed out, that the word disorder is unnecessary because uh, uh, it's not a disorder, it's a natural response to this sort of stress. This again promotes a, a kind of fatalism uh, that, 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 because they, they need it to survive or they go stark staring mad. That, that is the rational response to huge shells crashing down amongst them. And you're going to be Lieutenant Lionel Sotheby of the Second Black Watch. They shell us day and night because we have some field pieces just behind. They circle round with shrapnel, high explosive, etc. So far, they've missed us. Oh, it's simply fine. I don't know if my head is going or what, but I laugh and sometimes roar at the shells when they fly quite close. It takes people differently. Others curse and swear at the Germans. There's as many reactions as, as there are human beings, if you see what I mean. Uh, now, um, But of course, there's also some dark disrespectful humour. And I particularly like this quote. I'm going to be Private George Mitchell, 48th Australian Battalion. A fussy little major from another battalion blew up, all beans and bounce. Where is the company headquarters, my man? He asked. A 5.9, that's a 5.9 inch shell, landed with a thunderous flame-pierced blast of destruction. It was just where that shell landed. I couldn't say where it is now. <laughs> He gave me a dirty look, opened his mouth to say something, but changed his mind. If you go now, sir, you, sh you will arrive just as the next shell lands. He gave me another black look, but took the hint and waited. Perfect Australian. Oh, Praised by Matt McLaughlin. Matt <laughs> says that you have a very good Australian. But he what's said he know? <laughs> The ability to recover from even the closest escape seems incredible to the eye, unschooled by practical experience of men at war. Men tried their best to remain positive-minded, but it was difficult when the evidence of their own mortality was everywhere. Now, you're going to be Captain Lionel Crouch, the 1st Buckinghamshire Battalion. Birchall says, he means uh, Captain Edward Birchall, Birchall says that he doesn't want to get killed a bit. He wants to die at the age of 95 and be buried by the vicar and the curate and his funeral attended by all the old ladies of the parish. He strongly objects to large objects of an explosive nature being thrown at him and then his remains being collected in a sandbag and buried by ribald soldiery and dug up again two days later by a 5.9 inch. Yeah, and this is this is one of the sad things because that's a funny quote. It's amusing the two people having a laugh. Uh, Captain Ed Edward Birchall, uh, he, he outlives the writer. Uh, the, the writer Lionel Crouch, who you were, was killed on twenty first of July, nineteen sixteen. What happens to Birchall himself? Well, he dies a few weeks later on tenth of August, nineteen sixteen. He was just thirty two years old. He didn't make his ninety odd. 
That's uh, so again, uh, but it, that's the humour of the trenches. But the, the whole point about what we're trying to say is, it's not all funny. And one tale that appeals to us is the simple insouciance. Oh, well pronounced, Gary. Thank you. Of the unsung hero who was discovered, despite shells crashing down all around, sat on the far step, exuding an air of calm. I'm going to be this one, aren't I? You are going to be Private Lionel Renton of 16th Middlesex Regiment, once more Public Schools Battalion. You seem happy enough, despite the bombardment. Oh, I'm happy enough, sir, replied the postman. Although equal in rank with Lionel, he addressed everyone with an educated voice as sir, whether officer or in the ranks. You can have a bombardment at any time, sir, he said. But it's not every day you can get a cheese sandwich. (laughs) Oh, dear. There he is, eating a cheese sandwich, sat on a faster with shells exploding all around him. Well... Now, where they had a bit of time on their hands, they, they could really go to town, celebrating a single unexploded shell as if it represented a kind of triumph against fate itself. And this is uh, a, a poem uh, of sorts by Captain Randolph Chell of the 10th Essex Regiment. In one case, a German shell, which had lodged in the Parados uh, and failed to explode, was made the object of an elaborate wooden cross with the inscription in memory of one of Kaiser's pills, R.I.P. And underneath, here lies the body of a German shell. It hoped to send us all to hell, but it didn't explode and did no harm, so we covered it up to keep it warm. Now, rather interestingly, his name rhymes with hell. Chell and hell. Blimey! That now, just shows you. Unexploded shells exerted a strange and occasionally fatal fascination on some men. Well, let's be honest, some idiot visitors to the Western Front uh, still take their lives into their own hands, messing about with uh, live ordnance they find on the battlefield. So it's not that unsurprising. And you're going to be Private John Tucker. Oh, John Tucker, I hope his name don't rhyme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're going to be Private John Tucker of the 2nd mean, <laughs> 13th London Regiment. That's the Kensington Battalion. The surrounding fields and remains of orchards were inundated with shell holes, smashed trees and outbuildings. There were many unexploded shells lying about, some of large calibre. I saw one stupid man trying to remove the brass nose cap from one with a chisel. We gave him and the shell a wide berth. Perhaps he was fed up with life. Oh dear! Oh dear! Now this is let me let me introduce you here because this is one of my favourite quotes in the book. Um, uh, it's one of the more amusing reactions to shellfire, and it's shown by the mother superior. It's it's by the mother superior of the lock lock yeah convent. It's not far behind the front line, and it's still occupied by nuns. And you're going to be second lieutenant. Frank Laird of the 8th Dublin Fusilier Regiment. And there's a very good book by uh, Carol Hope that you might wish to... Con- Frank speaking. And uh, you might want to consider buying it. Uh, it's not all as funny as this, but this is a, a prime quote. The Bosch threw over some shells which fell just outside the convent walls. During the performance, which lasted some time, the Mother Superior stood at an upstairs window calmly looking on. A captain of the rifles expressed his surprise that she did not take cover to one of the nuns. Ah, well, replied the latter. She's not many excitements in her life. Now, not all, not all the shelter uh, as a high explosive or shrapnel. Gas, of course, 
gas shells have been developed. Very accurate member of distribution, far better than cloud gas uh, that was used in 15. Uh, chlorine and phosgene gases, they're dreadful weapons of war. And uh, there are not many amusing stories of men being gassed. That, let's just make that blunt. But uh, that certainly didn't stop men laughing at the threat of gas uh, and, and, the, and gas precautions. And uh, I'm going to be Sergeant Edward Rule, Edgar, 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 Rule of the 14th uh, Australian Battalion. He wrote Jacker's Mob. That's a great book. He says this. One afternoon at tea time, we were sitting around the CR's dugout, and he said to me, have you heard about the new gas? No, I replied. What is it? It gets into your pay book and kills your next of kin. The name and address of his next of kin were, were in every sergeant's pay book. I don't think you need the last bit to explain. No, I do quite like that. <laughs> yeah. The early gas helmets, they're the uh, the hooded PH type. That's the one with the <laughs> at the front, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, it is. That's what the British soldier did in them as well. <laughs> and that would uh, continue to be the standard gas mask until the advent of the small box respirator in the summer of 1916. And that's the one that classically you see in most of the photos now, isn't it? Now, there's even a shocking, amusing slur on the supposed lack of intelligence of the Irish soldier. Now, we want to make clear, firstly, this, 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 this story is probably apocryphal to start with, and secondly, uh, the specific nationality <laughs> attributed to it varies with who it is. Uh, uh, but men do do stupid things at times, so we're not insulting the Irish, we're just insulting men, really. So you're going to be Captain Joseph Goss of the 7th, 8th King's Own Scottish Borderers. I think that explanation, Pete, has really helped because now we're insulting everybody. Yeah. Oh, not everybody's a man, Gary. In the Great War trenches. Oh, yeah. And this is Captain Joseph Goss. I think it was from Edinburgh, King's Own Scottish Borders. Uh, we were once serving next to the men of an Irish regiment, some of whom had characteristically bored a hole in their gas masks so that should it be necessary for them to wear their masks for any prolonged period they might while away the time by having a smoke. Unfortunately, before their device was discovered, a gas attack did necessitate the use of masks, and it is feared that no one will ever be able to find out what they thought of their experiment. It's cracking, it is. Now, let's get on to some of the other... The, 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 actually, patrols and raids. We deal with major attacks in another podcast. But patrols and raids, they're a dangerous necessity. A lot of First World War books will go on and on about them being stupid. But wh why? Why do you have to patrol? Why do you have to raid? Why do you have to get out and about in no man's land? Why, Gary? Why? Explain to me. Well, certainly with the British, uh, they couldn't allow the Germans to settle you've got to hurry them at every turn to establish a domination uh, over no man's land. While raids, they'd be launched on occasion with the aim of either grabbing a prisoner and gaining intelligence or to establish exactly which unit was in the line opposite them. Yeah, that would let the British intelligence officers track German movements and judge whether they were planning anything untoward. Untoward? You mean a bloody great big attack? Uh, in the near future. So what were, what was a patrol? Well, what you tell me, what's a patrol? Well, the patrol, they that would creep out at night. Silence was very important consideration for obvious reasons. And any noise would usually lead to a series of German star shells and lashings of German gunfire. Lashings, now that is a word. Now, sadly, 
Many officers didn't have the uh, confidence in their charges when it came to maintaining the degree of silence required. And this is what Ch uh, Captain Charles May of the 22nd Manchester Regiment says. <laughs> Aye, the dear old English Tommy only has, and I expect will ever only have, one idea of warfare. That is to walk up to a Johnny, German, and stick a bayonet into him. In the aggregate, that is his sole aim and object. He cannot dissemble, has no cunning, and, no, and only a canteen interest in strategy, and only then as an excuse to blather with a friend over a can of beer. Arr. He cares nothing for the idea of stealth. He is not really built for quietly, I'm just looking at you, quietly stealing up on an unsuspecting foe. As proof, you only need put one tin gun in a six-acre field. <laughs> and turn two Tommies loose in that field to do a silent night march. I will guarantee that in three minutes, one has stumbled over the can, and that in a further three, both have kicked it. There must, I think, be some magnetism between ammunition boots and odd cans, which unknown people have discarded in out-of-the-way places. And uh, you had a suggestion as to what the third thing they'd do was. Yeah, after about another three minutes, they'd be uh, playing football with it. <laughs> On me head! <laughs> Now, patrols were small-scale affairs, but raids, they could be quite considerable operations of war involving whole battalions. Yeah, yeah, and lots and lots of artillery and mortar support. Are they planned out in detail? And orders several pages long, giving the exact timetable, the resources allocated, blah-de-blah-blah. Blah. And there's also, usually before the lads went over the top, there'd be a pep talk as to what to expect. Uh, raids, what are they about? What's a raid all about? Oh, it's all about speed and domination. Wow. <laughs> employing the maximum of violence intended to shatter German confidence. Consequently, there was little clemency once the required prisoner had been secured. So they only need one prisoner. Yeah, they need one. So if there's uh, ten... Then nine are not needed, Pete. So you're going to be Private Harry Hall of the 13th York in Lancaster Regiment. Aye. When we went on the bombing raids, this general came round to give us a talk. He said... If you see a German and he pleads for you to spare his life, he'll say he's got a wife and four children. You make sure he don't get five. Which, is, in a way, is terrible. It's, he's saying execute prisoners. That's what that's literally saying. And yet we have a chuckle, dear, dear. Anyway, raids, sometimes successful, sometimes abject failures. Uh, but the, the reaction of one uh, brigade intelligence officer, well, it, it's a, a damp squib of a, bay, of a raid. It, it's... Pretty good, isn't it? And who am I going to be? You're going to be Captain David Kelly of Headquarters 110th Brigade. That pause was for effect. I noticed. This peaceful period was also interrupted by a raid carried out by our 8th Battalion. An officer of the Intelligence Corps came down to us that night in the hope of interrogating the prisoner. But no prisoners were taken. In fact, no Germans were seen. Warned, presumably, by our preliminary bombardment, they'd apparently vacated their trench. This was very unfair on their part, especially as our bombardment had cost £10,000 and we badly needed an identification. But as a distinguished socialist politician once said to me, what makes internationalism so hard is the absence of the British spirit abroad. <laughs> oh, well, what more can you say? You have to laugh or cry, Gary, laugh or cry. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary.
Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?